All right. This morning, we will continue our Advent series, Season of Longing, as we prepare to celebrate the arrival of Christ Jesus. And we are looking at human desires from the perspective of the Incarnation. This morning, we're going to consider our longing for control. Our text is Daniel chapter 7, and we're just going to look at two verses. Before I read that, I want to say that I am uh, particularly thankful for an essay by seminary professor Fred Zaspel called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or I'm sorry, the Son of Man. Uh, It was very helpful for me in writing this sermon. Okay, so Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. This is God's Word. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is probably the most important vision or prophecy in the book of Daniel, which is a book full of visions and prophecies. And many of the themes in Daniel are repeated in the book of Revelation, which uh, we did a Bible study last summer. If you remember, uh, we talked about Daniel a lot because a lot of these visions are repeated. Um, Many of the visions in Daniel were about ancient kingdoms and powerful kings But this vision is unique because it is clearly messianic. This is a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. But notice how Daniel describes Jesus. He says, There came one like a son of man. If you're familiar with the Bible, then you've heard that phrase before. The phrase Son of Man is used over a hundred times in the Old Testament, but this is the only place in the Old Testament where it explicitly refers to the Messiah. The only place. And that is strange, to me at least, because Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man 80 times in the Gospels. In fact, Son of Man is the title that Jesus most often used to describe Himself. And in Matthew 26, Jesus explicitly links His use of that title to Daniel 7. And what makes this even more strange is when you look at all the other hundred times that the phrase Son of Man is used in the Old Testament... Everywhere but Daniel, it simply means human being. That's it. Son of man was a Hebrew idiom for human being. It's just another way to say human. 
And many times the, the Bible writers used that expression to try to create distance between their idea of humans and of God. For instance, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, it says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. The words of David, Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. So it seems like they're using this phrase to try to say, God is not like us. We are not like him. That seems to be the point. But then you get to Daniel 7, and it's very confusing. Daniel sees the Messiah being given an everlasting kingdom, but this Messiah looks like a son of man. And then of all the titles that Jesus could have chosen for himself, most of the time he uses this simple idiom in third person. The Son of Man. So what does Jesus mean by it? And what does that have to do with us? It is sunny and thundering. Alright. Dramatic pause for the question to sink in. Okay. <clears throat> um, so and we're talking about visions and prophecies. Okay, so in Daniel... The vision here is a contrast between the Messiah and all the other kings. Okay, So Daniel's talking about, he's seeing visions of all these kingdoms of the earth. And all the kingdoms of the earth are ruled by men who are described in Daniel as terrible beasts. Those are the visions that he sees, right? These really crazy visions of beasts and animals. And all of their power was for a moment. It was temporary. But now he sees this, this one coming like a son of man. And he's talking now about God's kingdom. And he says God's kingdom will rest in the hands of a man who is somehow also God. It's very subtle, but it, it's there. And so by calling himself son of man, Jesus is claiming to be that king. He's claiming to be that man who is somehow in the place of God. But the irony is, it's also the most humble title that Jesus could have claimed for himself. It's both of those things at the same time. It's the most humble title that Jesus could have claimed for himself first because of what it actually means, which is simply man. He's just a man. And second, it's humble because of how Jesus chose to use it. Look at some of these examples. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders 
and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Luke 9.44 I love this. Let these words sink into your ears. You're not listening to me. The Son of Man, Daniel 7, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So if you, if you look at the way Jesus uses that phrase to describe Himself, it doesn't sound much like a powerful ruler, does it? It sounds more like Jesus is describing Himself as a homeless, powerless nobody. And there's a humility here that is impossible to miss. Jesus is making it really, really obvious. And yet, nowhere in any of that does Jesus let us believe that He has lost control. He told His disciples about His death and resurrection so many times before it actually happened because He wanted to make it obvious that He was always in control. The great King of the universe, the Son of Man of Daniel 7, was choosing humiliation and death. He was not surprised by it. And if you're going to be honest, there's some part of you that's like, that doesn't make any sense, right? This whole thing is just very confusing. But for this to make sense, we have to go back to the beginning. Back to Genesis. Because of our sin, the Old Testament makes it very clear that there is a distance between us and God. Very often, the way they describe us and the way they describe God, all the Old Testament writers, they're making it very clear. God is not like us. We are not like Him. He is holy, 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 right? And we are not, not, not. But when you go back to the beginning, when you go back to the time, just the first two chapters of Genesis, before sin enters the world, things were different. Genesis 1 explicitly says that we were created in God's image and then given a very specific task. We were to fill the earth and to rule over it as God's representatives. And so if you, if you only had Genesis 1 and 2, if you didn't have the rest of the Bible, and all you had were those first two chapters, it would seem like God actually did create us in many ways like Him. That we are actually a lot like God. That He made us for the purpose of living out His character on the earth. And He gave us authority over the earth. And if that's all you had, that's all we would know. But chapter 3 tells us that Adam and Eve forfeited that responsibility. They forfeited that 
that role when they disobeyed God and rejected his authority. And the great irony is, if you read the story, is that their sin was a desire to be more like God than they already were. They had a desire for more control. They wanted something they couldn't have. And they quickly realized that that was something they could never have. And, and it rains <laughs> when I'm talking about the fall. Okay, have fun with that. So that desire for control is, is kind of why we're here and it's what I want to talk about. And I'm, I'm going to try to wrap this up as nicely as I can to make it make sense. The desire for control is everywhere. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and what happened in the Garden of Eden. And it's very easy to spot when you consider the emotions that it creates. When we don't feel like things are going according to our plans, and we may not even realize that we feel that's happening, right? I mean, there's times when you, you, you think, this is not what I want, right? This is... This is the opposite of what I would have done. This is not what I wanted in life right now. But sometimes it's more subtle than that. You don't even realize you're doing it. You just get angry. You don't even know why you're angry. You're just angry. This happened to me two days ago. Turns out it was because I wanted control of something that I didn't have control of. But I didn't know that's what was going on at the time. I just was angry. And if you were in my path, watch out. Because when we don't feel like things are going according to our plans, when we feel out of control, what usually happens is it produces inside of us this anxiety or anger or both. Feeling out of control feels like anxiety or anger. Okay? And this comes straight out of the Bible. This is not, I'm not pulling this out of modern psychology. This comes out of the Bible. Look at this. Proverbs 16.32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You see that? That relationship between anger and power and control... Proverbs 10.24 says, What the wicked dreads will come upon him. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? The Bible actually does teach us to pay attention to our emotions. And the reason for that is because they're often telling us something about our hearts. And in this case, it's telling us something about our desire for control. And if we stop to evaluate the things that are causing us to become angry or anxious, most of the time, it's something that we have no control over at all. We are spending emotional energy trying to figure out how to fix something that we cannot fix. And the question that the Bible is repeatedly asking us is this. Do we believe that Jesus is king or not? 
Do I believe in my heart that Jesus is king over this world or not? Do I believe he is good or not? Is he king? Is he good? Do I believe that he cares for me? Or not? The hard part is that God is asking us to trust Him with all of this, even though we can't see the big picture. The Apostle Paul calls it living by faith instead of by sight. And what makes it so difficult is that God's kingdom is not fully realized yet. Okay? The world around us is contesting the rule of Christ. Every knee has not yet bowed. Every tongue has not yet confessed. And that's why it's so difficult to trust God with all the stuff that we can't control because there is so much wrong still in the world and so many people still rebelling against Him and even us at times rebelling against Him in our hearts and in our lives. And because that's true, it's difficult to trust God because what we see doesn't always match up with what we believe. But thankfully, God did not wait on us to trust Him. He came to us. And He's been in control the entire time. Jesus becoming a man and doing everything for us is meant to shatter the illusion that we have any control at all over our own destiny. We think that God wants us because of our faith, because of what we've done, because of what we believed, because of what we bring to Him in tribute. It has nothing to do with us at all. I read a story this week um, about a missionary serving with um, a group of people in Tanzania known as the Maasai people. And at one point, the missionary shared with one of the tribe's elders that he was having struggles with his own faith. He confessed this, this doubt to one of the elders of the tribe. And in that conversation, the Maasai elder pointed out that the word that the missionary had been using in Swahili to convey the word faith was actually not a very good word in their language. The word that they were using for faith meant literally to agree to something. I agree with you. And his point was that's not good enough. That's not strong enough. The Messiah elder went on to explain that to, to believe like that, to just agree with something, was similar to a hunter shooting an animal at a great distance. He said the hunter only needs a finger and an eye to get involved in the hunt. But he said that true faith is more like a lion going after its prey. And if you've ever seen a video of a lion hunting its prey... He described it. He said the lion uses his eyes and his ears and his nose 
all of his senses get involved in trying to find the prey. And once he locates it, he crouches and he stalks along the ground, almost invisible to us. The lion gets into position and then when he pounces, he says all the power of his body is involved And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops the prey in his arms and pulls it to himself. Literally makes it a part of himself. And he said, this, the elder said, this is the way that one believes. Making faith a part of oneself. And the missionary sort of nodded in agreement. Yeah, yeah, that's you're right, you're right. But the elder was not done yet. He said, I don't think you understand. He said, we did not search you out. We did not even want you to come to us. You searched us out. You told us about the Most High God. You told us we must search for God, but we have not done this. Instead, God has searched us out and found us and sent you And all the time, we think that we're the lion, and in the end, the lion is God. The lion is God. And brothers and sisters, that is the point. It has always been the point. We're not God. He is. We're not in control. He is. And to prove the point, God became a man and stayed in control. The lion of the tribe of Judah became the lamb who was slain. And the circumstances of the Christmas story and ultimately the mission of Jesus proved that God had everything under control. And He still does. And what we need to do with all of our anxiety and all of our fear and our anger about failed plans and missed opportunities is to take them to Jesus in repentance. And for that reason, I want to end with one verse from John 16. The words of Jesus. Before Jesus said this, He was telling His disciples in detail about some of the things that they would have to endure with what was left of their lives. And it was not going to be easy stuff. And then after He tells them all the stuff that God had planned for their lives, including torture and death for most of them, He says this to them and to us. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will suffer. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Amen. And He did it with broken body and shed blood. 
And brothers and sisters, He invites us to His table this morning. It is a table of forgiveness. It is a table of repentance and faith. It is a visible Word. This table is preaching to us the presence of Christ, the fellowship in Christ. And you're invited. This this table does not belong to Christ's fellowship. It is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He invites us to it. If you have made public profession of faith in Him, if you are trusting only Christ for the forgiveness of sins and entrance into His kingdom, then this table is for you. If you have not yet done that, there is absolutely no shame in staying where you are this morning. We will pray with and for you that the Lord will reveal Himself, that He will tackle you as the Lion of Judah, (laughs) and bring you into His kingdom. Until that time, do not take this supper because you would be doing something that is a lie. When you're ready to profess your faith, let's do that first. Um, But I'm going to pray for us and then uh, give you the instructions. Lord Jesus, we come to You this morning thankful that You have pursued us, that You have embraced us, that You have made it possible for us to be entered into Your presence, to be part of Your family, to be adopted as children, to have an inheritance and a hope, one that we do not deserve. We pray that You would make this table a means of grace for us this morning as we partake in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread. And having given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of Me. After dinner, He took the cup and gave it to His disciples and said, This cup represents the new covenant which is in My blood. Drink of it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Um, Paxton's going to come and join me down front. And the way we're going to do this is uh, there are two cups stacked onto each other. The one on the bottom has the bread. The one on the top has the juice. And um, at the end, uh, we'll partake together. And uh, so just come down the middle aisle and then go back to your seats. And we'll just take the first first row and then just cycle through
<laughs> Mine's stuck. Come on out. All right. Body of Christ, take any. blood of Christ shed for your sins. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord Jesus, um, we are grateful uh, for your sacrifice. We're grateful for your love. We're grateful for the promise that you have overcome the world that no matter what we experience in this life, sometimes It feels overwhelming to us. It feels so difficult that we don't know we can endure it. But I pray that everyone in this room, every soul that's listening would hear the promise that you are in control. You have overcome the world. You are the ancient of days, Lord. Help us to believe this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Stand together and sing.